This is Life Worlds, the place where we explore life through other eyes and minds. Let's flip the script and discover how to orient your world around nature. I'm Alexa Permanish. Come join me as we get down and forage for fungi, stalk coyotes, draft laws for rivers, hum with beehives, sing bird language, and help beavers to dam again. Let these stories spark your reconnection to nature's multiverse. Learn how to bring ecosystems back to life, become an agent for other intelligences, and begin to see how you too are the sum of all life worlds. Hello everyone, greetings from atop a snowy mountain in the Swiss Alps, where I am recording this with a hot chocolate in hand, maybe a dash of whiskey has made its way in there too. And my feet are being warmed by the embers of what was a roaring fire. I hope that you're wrapped deliciously in end of year celebrations with your loved ones. And as you'll likely hear this in the early days of the new year, I wish you a glorious return around the sun. And I bow with you to greet this potential with all of its promise and mystery. Today, I want to share with you my personal harvest from the first season of the show. These will be the learnings I've received from all the voices, stories, and characters who have colored this podcast in the first season. I've listened back and tracked the conversations, attuning to the spaces between the words, searching for the patterns in the paw prints in the ground. And I would like to open this space with you, this episode, with a story I once wrote which I've chosen to try and convey a small sliver of my own tale of how I've fallen bewitched with the earth and how I've come to understand this world as being suffused with so many overlapping life worlds. It's just me today with you in this episode, so lie back and I hope that this harvest brings you inspirations and a little track of breadcrumbs to follow into the new year. I will take a sip of my hot chocolate and then begin. I slink like a bobcat through the roots. At my feet, white-starred flowers leap from Indian lettuces like ballet dancers, nature's art whirling in green saucers. A sprig of roadside rosemary rolls oily between my thumb and forefinger. Barely perceptible, a glistening drop of sap hovers from a baby pine, it beckons to me with beady succulents. I wander over, warming to its nectar, touching it softly to the roof of my mouth. I become intimate with the trees. My first springtime in these new lands. The landscape inhales me. A prolonged in-breath, months wide. Each dawn a new trail, each padded footstep deeper into an ancient language. I purr quiet prayers among sunset groves, fumbling for words, occasionally surprised by the sudden burst of something distinctly sylvan pouring from my tongue. I gaze breathless at the secret choices that the oak's elbow takes to twist and to turn, in a dance perceivable only to photosynthetic time, flipping rods and cones in my eyes, and now it's the air around the branches that are dictating the flow of the wood their trajectory carved by hydrogen riverbanks. 
I greet and sketch and taste, and more than anything, I slow down. I listen. Every element of this landscape begins to weave into my own story. I feel my senses and animal nature expanding. Crow, woodpecker, honeybee, coyote, newt, granite, acorn, fire, alabaster glow, sagebrush, and my own salty tears. All have their place in this ecology of mind. And that, my friends, is a roundabout way to begin summarizing this season's harvest of life worlds, just as the forest would have it. Because you see, when you begin to hone and shift your perception of the world as being alive with an ocean of all these overlapping life worlds, with these distinct viewpoints of other species whose expressions can be traced, witnessed, experienced, well, your imagination and your whole body becomes vividly awakened and you begin to pay a certain tribute to the vast intelligence of the earth that contains and sparks your own. I started this podcast because I wanted to begin to tease apart how people can learn to inhabit the world from multiple perspectives, with the ultimate goal being able to feel the earth's body as our own body. Today's exponential disappearance of the planet's biodiverse landscapes and all their residents the biotic and the abiotic, the streams and the beetles and wild horses and plump berries on trees. The loss of all these life forms is an exponential loss of all the ways we can read and understand ourselves and all of life. If we are to protect and regenerate our home planet, we have to learn how to place ourselves in the shoes, claws, paws, wings and gills of those who may appear to be entirely different to ourselves. The closer we get to them, the closer we might be to realizing that there are more things that bind us in common that set us apart. The closer we are to embodying and knowing these other life worlds, the closer we are to cultivating an earnest sense of empathy and care, and (laughs) to actually knowing what might be the wise and right action in any given situation. There is a line in one of Robin Wall Kimmerer's books where she says, Restoring land without restoring relationship is an empty exercise. It is relationship that will endure and relationship that will sustain the restored land. Today, I'm going to share with you what it means to restore that relationship. There are three main things I'll touch on from what I've gathered across these 20 or so first episodes. The first is the challenge of how we integrate others into our models of the world. The second is how, in episode after episode, we heard stories of how healing the land, of how tending to the life worlds of the earth, begins to heal ourselves. And the third point is a collection of insights that our guests shared on how we can actually resensitize and reanimate ourselves to the aliveness and our own participation with the world. So, cuddle up with me and let's delve in. Okay, so it might not be the most uh, cheerful place to start, but I need to share with you that probably one of my greatest concerns about the future of our civilization is the rapidly escalating polarization between different cultures, between political dogmas, between the human and the wilder, the non-human. All these things are exacerbated by the forms of media we know so well can cause harm. In this growing chasm and position-taking, If we don't have the skills to see a mirror of ourselves, however faint the trace might be, in the most radically different form of the other, the other here, in brackets, right? This idea of the other. 
well then, how can we be able to be expected to accept, integrate, and cohabitate on a planet whose livable surface is rapidly shrinking? So while this podcast speaks about a relationship with more than human life, hold close in mind that we're speaking about the very same dynamics that go on with our wider human family. In our episodes in Rewilding, both Christine Tompkins and Derek Gao reflected that by far, the greatest inhibitor of restoring landscapes at large scale is the human mindset of separation, the psychology that divides between what is mine, 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 and what is theirs. Derek says that other animals are seen as a direct threat to our perceived hegemony. Anything that takes anything from us is unacceptable. And so we've sliced up watersheds, we've carved continents into slivers of parceled plots, preventing the natural flows of the landscape. Barbed wire fences encircle our intestines, eight-lane highways slice across our throat, and the remnants of dams and weirs choke our lungs. The act of life-worlding, as I call it, hence involves imagining ourselves as the species, as the landscapes that we've banished from their original homes. And to begin, as Christine says, the tremendous amount of work necessary in the socialization of species coming back. And so how do we do this? What does it mean to socialize species coming back? How do we return sometimes large, seemingly threatening carnivores to our forests or beavers back into waterways that may flood farmlands? Well, it often begins with local pride, with citizens hailing the return of a fully functioning ecosystem and with the heroes like the jaguars returning to the land and all the economic, social, and spiritual benefits that this brings. As Tara Martin shared, we can literally learn to pull up a seat for the salmon at the decision-making table and witness how differently the conversation may unfold. Similarly, the rights of nature movement involves such a phase shift in perception. Just like in scenarios of human conflict resolution, we need to exercise our minds to place ourselves in the shoes of the other and imagine what it might be like to no longer be able to spawn upstream as your ancestors have for millennia, or how, as a swarm of bees, you might feel if you're prevented from the sheer bliss of swarming, or for the convenience of a cup of honey at breakfast tables around the world. When you do this, you begin, as Christine shares, to seek out a confrontation with the true world. You allow your heart to be broken open to empathy, and often to some degree of compromise. I myself have come to seek that out time and time and time again to keep me honest and accountable and whole. Because here's the thing on this challenge, right, of integrating others into our model of the world. As nature teaches us, as many ancient philosophies around the world teach, as the latest models of physics teach, we are not individuals. The notion of the solitary self is a complete illusion. We are all, in some senses, fungal, connected by a vast taproot system where notions of species divides break down, and our sense of self can perhaps be seen as a momentary, above-ground mushrooming. Juliana Fritschi shares with us that for her, the fungi, the fungi, the mushrooms, question the limits of an individual and of individual existence. Across the show, we've heard that when we have our gaze returned by another species— when we tune into the birds speaking and realize that they're actually telling stories about us, when a whale leaps out from the water and convinces an environmental minister 
not to build a salt mine. When we have the totems and symbols all around our built environment of our animal family, depicting their ancient teachings, all of this immerses us into an understanding that we share the earth with others and depend on each other to continue existing. As Michael Abelman says, we find our way into the slipstream of biological activity of the natural world, and we see ourselves humbly as only one piece of the system. So I see equal parts challenge and wondrous opportunity here. Challenge because a lot of dignified work is involved both internally and externally in the difficult work of actual restoration. And yet it's wondrous. And now I move us on to our second point. It's wondrous because when we begin to heal this rift, we heal ourselves. We are not, as a global community, I believe, fully aware of the existential pain we experience below the surface due to having sliced ourselves off from the rest of creation. Nature and soul not only depend on each other, but they long for each other. They are of the same substance, like twins or trees sharing the same roots. Thus, when we begin to participate again in the virtuous cycle of the life worlds of others, the healing can be almost instantaneous. Gavin Van Horn shared his experience of the Chicago Green Corps, a program where citizens who had barely interacted with nature, and many of whom had been incarcerated in the past, engaged in restoring their urban landscape, and they began to heal in marvelous ways, feeling a profound sense of contribution and pride to their local community. Similarly, Michael and his pioneering work with Soul Food Street Farms, which is North America's largest urban farm, employing people who have been impacted by substance abuse and homelessness. He says, We are merely farmers who realize that the simple act of growing food, the act of giving people an opportunity to do something real, giving them fertile soil to put their hands in, and a sense of producing for the local community, that creates a sense of profound purpose and belonging. We have people working with us to this day who've been with us for 13 years and they'd never previously held a job for four or five months. So something's happening here, right? And again, Christine Tompkins shares that despite having been CEO of Patagonia and having lived a deeply successful and rich career, her life only became whole when she started trying to restore areas and bring back species. So please hold this quote in mind because it's critical. Our wholeness depends on the nature we attempt to make whole, right? Our own wholeness depends on the nature we attempt to make whole. That, of course, then begs the question, how do we make nature whole? There's obviously a lot of ways of doing this. I'm just going to touch on a few here, but I do love a term that Gavin used, a term that he calls active kinship. Kinship here meaning the making of kin, of family, of relating, contrasted to the act of passive kinship. Active means you roll up your sleeves and you get involved. John Thackra shared this too when he says that just telling people things isn't enough. Just passively ingesting information is not enough. It is the living, embodied relationships with nature that is the one thing that unlocks the impasse. John emphasized that people should be given real tasks to do, things like ecosystem restoration camps, leaving places better than we found them. And I do agree with this. I think that there is a distinct necessity 
for direct first-person experience. Like I said before, this is different from passively taking in the beauty of the world, which is obviously wonderful and I do it often, but the word that comes up for me here is participation. Like in vision quests, when all of a sudden we realize that we are part of life, we begin to chip away at the story of separation. We participate in these incredible cycles and find out how courageous we really are. I love what Darren said in his episode, and he said, we don't need any more information. What we need is courage. What we need are people who can go out there and surrender themselves to life. To participate in life is a deeply courageous act. And you know, it doesn't have to be some sweeping act of returning mammoths to the Siberian tundra or packing your bags, leaving home to plant trees in the middle of the desert. Sophie Strand uses this notion of direct relating with non-sexy local heroes. You can take care of one being intimately in your local ecosystem, a mouse or a fly that you do a favor for. You can start fermenting foods and growing closer to fungal accomplices. Life worlding is about all of these everyday intimacies, these everyday intimacies as a doorway into the wider world, as they say in myth, the world behind the world. It's in the food we participate in as a living verb in process. Think back to Lila June's episode talking about indigenous food systems. This local belonging, this participation, this is one form of ceremony of which Tyson Yonkaporta spoke when he says, this is the ceremony where you give back a part of yourself to what's been extracted and what needs to be renewed. And, you know, speaking from, from my personal experience and that of, of several people around me, I can say with a degree of conviction that this act of mutual healing is quite frankly one of the most sincere and beautiful acts you might ever do in all of your lifetime. Because life does quite literally rush back in. Derek shares that when keystone species like beavers are returned to ecosystems, the light goes back on, the engine starts to take over, and every guild of life that is still there is able to look at these green oases and they sliver, fly, crawl, or trot to return to find them. And my friends, it's not just ecological life that rushes back in, but your own spirit too. In our rewilding episodes, we heard a story about red-shouldered macaws, a very uh, cute, small and green South American parrot, who were brought back to the country to begin repopulating the wild ecosystem. When they arrived from the breeders, they were a shadow who they actually are, a domesticated and shy bird. The restoration teams needed to use puppetry to train them to be birds again. And slowly, slowly, they returned to their innate natures and they now thrive out in the forest. As humans, we are all deeply capable of this too. We are capable of being self-realized at any moment in our lives because these inherent and beautiful instincts that we have as sentient beings, they never go out. So I guess I've kind of moved us on to the third point already. The one of, you know, what can I do? This is the question I get asked most often, and the one that many of you were grateful for, that I tried to address on the show. The question of, how do I get started? I think I've covered part of this answer. We've spoken about the need for 
direct, local participation, often in very simple acts. We heard about pollinator pathways, restoring urban forests, growing food, so many things as a doorway into wider systems and our own deep healing. Another way in that I might suggest is simply learning how to actually see and slowing down, slowing down. Lorenzo de Rosenzweig, who is director of Latin America's largest conservation trust fund, is also an avid bird watcher. And in our episode, he told me that he is constantly surprised when people tell him how strange it is that he wants to look at birds all day because they're all just brown or black. I mean, my gosh, can you imagine the difference between being the human being who says and believes that just birds are things that are brown or black versus being a person or human who has the capacity and sight to be enthralled, maybe by the iridescence of a simple pigeon feather, right? This is about expanding into wonder. This is about expanding into seeing how replete with, I don't know, beauty the world is in a certain sense. Juliana shares that on her fungal expeditions, you must walk very, very slowly, sharpening your senses to be able to react to differences in the texture of the ground, to pick up on the different vibration of fungal signals, the intuition of a place, and the compulsion you may feel to go in a certain direction and find something astonishing there. We heard a similar thing from John Burroughs, who founded the world's first dual law degree in indigenous and customary law in British Columbia. And what John does is he actually brings his students out into the campus of nature so that they start to see that the archive of the law is literally written on the earth. He teaches, as in his culture, that it is actually beings like trees or plants that are the true professors of law and that the natural laws and rules are written in the land. And it's a slow process, he says to really see this and decipher the messages. You need to dedicate time, openness, flexibility, and curiosity. This is about having a pliable and fascinated mind. And to do a very small part in supporting with this, I tried to share in the podcast some exercises. Um, in the beginning, there was a practice of sensing place, along with meditations and poems, to encourage this slowing, this listening, this participating. And finally, as we talked about on the show, you have the possibility to engage in actual nature connection mentorship. John Young speaks extensively to this in his episode, and that the real work ahead is in getting adults to relive the childhood they didn't get, because you cannot skip that. There are primary nervous system relationships that form a neural network inside of us, and they create an emergent property that you cannot fake. So how do we get adults to relive this childhood, this nature connection mentorship? I would advise you to tune into the final episodes of the series where both John and Darren share active practices, things like sit spots, vision quests, bird language tools, all these ways of building ropes that connect us to the whole world. And in my story in the beginning, you might remember how I said, each dawn a new trail, each padded footstep deeper into an ancient language. For me, it was through a series of daily walks and engagements that the landscape began to reveal its true nature to me. Like a lover, you must also court the earth. She might reveal herself shyly at first, 
coyly revealing her true nature. But I know one thing to be true. The world wants to be felt by you. It wants to be touched by your attention. It wants to be witnessed by your senses and reciprocity. We emit as human beings these electromagnetic fields just as the trees do. And it's been shown quite vividly how plants will change their fields to respond to your presence. It is a responsive, alive world out there. And also, it's so much more fun to embody and become multiple forms of creation rather than just to inhabit your human form until the day you pass back into soil. So, as you continue down this path, maybe, just maybe, you can learn to become a channel through which other species can tell their stories. You can start to think like a landscape, have your mind rush down riverbanks as the river, become the wild god that comes to sit at the table. You can make yourself into good compost, let yourself rot, recomposing into something else entirely, sprouting fungal roots and sporing clouds that summon and ignite lightning. You can be like a bee that weaves a lattice across a landscape, or like a small and humble grain of yeast that when added to the mixture of the world, changes and lifts the entire system. I'll leave it here for now and for our first season. I just want to read one quote that I really love to close us off. And I'll see you in season two. I'll upload something different to explain where we might go. So for now, I'll just leave you with these words. This is by David Abram. The mountains, the creatures, the entire non-human world is struggling to make contact with us. The plants we eat or smoke are trying to ask us what we are up to. The animals are signaling to us in our dreams or in forests. The whole earth is rumbling, straining, to let us remember that we are of it, that this planet, the macrocosm, is our flesh, that the grasses are our hair, the treats are our hands, the rivers are blood, that the earth is our real body, and that it is alive. Thank you so much. Have a beautiful, beautiful start to your year, and we will hear from each other soon. <laughs>